0: always have a World Cup on the Olympic site the year before so I stood at the top of that course and I took a picture from the starting gate of these beautiful mountains and it was to serve you know as some type of training you know whether it's visualization uh, for the upcoming summer and going into the Olympic year Mm -hmm. and as I went home with that picture Knowing it was going to be my last year, I took the opportunity to reflect on my career, and I was always drawn back to those spring days at Alyeska, riding that m- long-ass Mike snow- <laughs> R- <Yeah. laughs> Rinkwit snow, excuse me, snowboard. Um, totally the wrong snowboard for me, but not caring, <laughs> right? I don't yeah. even know whose it was, um, but just. Being so present in that unconditional love for what I was doing. Yeah. And so I really did. I spent that summer reconnecting with that. Just that really simple love for the sport. And so that was the advice I was kind of simultaneously giving myself. Like, go back to that space of love. Mm -hmm. Where you weren't doing it for this stupid reason, or this reason, or that reason, or for someone to like you, or for this money, or for this title, right? Do it because you love it.
1: That was former Olympian Rosie Fletcher. Rosie grew up in Girdwood, Alaska, and remembers having an unconditional love for snowboarding, the riding, the friendships, and the competition. There was nothing she wanted to do more, and she had aspirations of being the best. So she worked three jobs to pay for her coaching lessons, the video store in Girdwood, the bake shop and a little restaurant in bird Creek. As she got better at snowboarding and at competing, she started winning local competitions. Then when she started winning those local competitions, she was invited to national competitions. When she started winning those, she was invited to competitions where she competed against the best in the world. She competed for 15 years, from her late teens into adulthood. In that time, she reached the podium locally, nationally, and globally. She received silver medals at the World Championships, World Cup gold medals, and a bronze medal in the 2006 Winter Olympics. That same year, in 2006 at the Olympics, she made a decision to leave the world of competitive snowboarding. It was a quiet exit. She didn't make a big deal out of it, and she didn't tell anyone. Instead, she savored everything about the experience. The stops at ski resorts, the hotels, the people she met, and her fellow competitors. To this day, she doesn't regret her decision to leave, because she accomplished what she set out to accomplish. She says that her strongest attribute is her perseverance. How whenever she's faced with life's obstacles, she keeps going. When she left the competitive snowboard scene, for example, she jokes that she didn't have any life skills, and that she barely knew how to boil water. So she made a point of learning how to cook. Now, she loves everything about the process of cooking, down to the meditative practice of preparing the food. That same passion goes into her work as a health and wellness instructor. She approaches it like an athlete. She only gets an hour with her clients, and she intends to use that time to its full potential. So here she is, Rosie Fletcher. Welcome to Chattermarks,
0: a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring
1: Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, past present,
2: and, and future. future.
1: My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. Rosie, it has been years since we have talked, hasn't it?
0: It's a very long time. I was thinking about that after (laughs) we connected. Like, it's been a really long time. However, it feels like just yesterday.
1: Yeah. You know, like two summers ago, you took a yoga teacher certification class with my sister, Kiana. And I remember her talking about her experience with it, and it sounded very transformative.
0: When your sister introduced herself, I was floored, you know, because (laughs) literally I hadn't seen her since she was a tiny girl. Yeah. And it was so shocking, but at the same time, so beautiful to see her there. And this was after Cody, she had shared her journey to this certification and that Mm -hmm. Sharon had brought her in. And oh, it just warmed my heart and to see her transformation, especially at her age, um, it was remarkable and it it definitely brought back a lot of memories of your family and, and um, how supportive um, both Scott and Sharon have been, you know, one throughout my life, let alone all of you guys. Mm-hmm. So it was wonderful to share that experience with her.
1: And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because like just through you know, proximity to my sister. I felt like, oh, I've, I've seen Rosie in the last like couple years, but really it was my sister who saw you. And I heard just little tidbits, you know, as she was doing that class, I think it was like three weeks, was it? Uh, three months. Oh, three months. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that was, that was a long class. Yeah,
0: real long. 200 hours.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, 200 hours. And she she just couldn't say enough great things about it, you know, and, and how close, you know, you all became.
0: It was, it, it was, um, serendipitous, uh, the universe in action, how all of us came together and shared that journey of transformation. It was beautiful.
1: And now you teach yoga, right?
0: I do. I teach a, from restorative deep stretch to a hot power flow, kind of all ends of the spectrum
1: how did you get into that? You know, how did you get into yoga?
0: Growing up in Girdwood, I went to little bears, which is the little daycare center down there. And I was fortunate enough to have a gentleman by the name of Dadam Singh as one of the, uh, teachers and he was a Sikh and taught Kundalini yoga. Mm -hmm. And at the time, you know, as children, we didn't know what he was teaching us, but he was essentially teaching us these Kriyas, which is like a breath movement work. And we loved it and we thought it was such a wonderful thing. And, and so throughout my childhood in Girdwood, I had these opportunities to take various yoga, meditation offerings through the community school and and just kind of explored um, that, that type of movement. Um, as I transitioned into full-time athlete, I really went back and utilized those type of, um, offerings kind of integrated them into my career and was so grateful. I had that experience with those different modalities. So it's kind of been like this lifelong endeavor at some points I didn't know I was utilizing it. So.
1: Yeah, that's great. I actually did not know that it's been a part of your life for so long.
0: It has. And I've, um, kind of sprinkled it here and there both as like a movement like um for, for training specifically but also um utilizing it in stressful situations when we're like super tight in our chest in our parasympathetic or in our sympathetic nervous system mm-hmm. really you know quieting the mind digging deep into those belly breaths um trying to re-engage the parasympathetic nervous system so like i said these are tools that i had learned when i was young that i really had no idea kind of how it would transpire you know in the rest of my life but boy i feel fortunate to have had those um, opportunities
1: i feel like yoga and stretching and just health in general are more accepted in let's just say snowboarding right now I wonder if you had any experiences where, you know, you're you're getting ready to go out or you're getting ready for a competition, you know, back in the day when you were snowboarding and doing competitions and you're doing yoga and people were like, what are you doing?
0: You know, that's funny you say that because I actually remember a couple of uh, my competitor, foreign competitors doing breath work with their trainers. And we were like, Whoa, what are those guys doing? Like their eyes are closed and like they're visualizing, you know, and yeah. And, um, you know, come to think of it, I'm sure that they were utilizing that modality of, you know, engaging through that parasympathetic nervous system, calming the heart rate, you know, kind of honing in on that focus for their competition.
1: So it was kind of the opposite then, like you were looking at them like, what are you doing?
0: Yeah, and I, I suppose it was just simply because it was being kind of presented in a different way as this thing. Whereas, you know, when I was younger, it was just what we did, Yeah. you know? It wasn't a differentiation between like life and then now we're gonna do this. It was like just kind of a part of it, you know? You woke up and you did a little meditation, you did some mindfulness, you know? kind of a gratitude, like, thank you fee for walking me on this earth, you know, just that kind of thing. So it was kind of just more integrated, I think, into our life. Whereas, you know, I saw them doing it and it it was just this very much a different thing, you know, that's kind of how I envisioned it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Cause it was separate than
0: What you would do on a daily basis. Yeah, exactly. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So when did you decide that you wanted to work in health and wellness? You know, what motivated you to go in that direction?
0: It felt like a natural transition. And after I have two children, a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old, and um, modeling health and wellness for them um, was very important. And I would have people reach out all the time. What would you do for this? What would you do for that? Like, how should I eat this? Or... Or what movement should I integrate into my um, training now? And so Mm -hmm. once the children were old enough, I really wanted to um, make my offerings more available and more accessible to everybody, not just athletes, but anybody who had a will and a desire to um, join that wellness journey for themselves.
1: Mm -hmm. So... And do you notice a difference in how maybe adults understand this and, you know, your kids who are in their early teens and still, you know, younger than that?
0: It's interesting. I think as adults, we're so much in our head, right? Mm -hmm. It's just this analytical, like, yes, no, right, wrong, good, bad. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, recently in a yoga class, we were in... Uh, An asana, and I offered circle your arms, and I had every adult look at me, and I said, "You guys, like, you know what circles are? You know how to circle your arms." But it it was just this, like, it it was kind of going back to that, like, right, wrong, and good and bad. And and whereas children would be like, "Oh, make circles with your arms, of course!" Like, I don't need to look at you because I know what, (laughs) like, my body knows what a circle is. And so, yeah, I think we're just so inside of our heads, you know.
1: Yeah. I wonder when that happens. I wonder when, um, you know, we get to a certain age and we're like self-conscious.
0: It is, it is. It's this, um, you know, our, our, maybe our judgment eye, you know, looking down at us instead of leading with our heart brain, you know?
1: Yeah, totally.
0: I believe we should shift that paradigm of the, Focusing on the past and what, what opportunities do I have Mm -hmm. before me? Like looking at it as a gift, being given a gift to move, being given a gift to eat nutritious food.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And actually on social media, you made a post a while back that starts with food is my love language. Totally. What did you mean by that?
0: i love feeding people
1: okay
0: okay (laughs) i I love the the whole like meditative practice of of preparing food like if it's in the summer you know growing the potato harvesting the potato um, and really infusing the process with presence and love i honestly feel like that energy energetically people can feel that in the food you prepare for them and you know, my mom said when we were young, like never cook when you're angry. Okay. Um, you know, like, and and you can tell by the way you cut the food or the knives, the way you're gripping tightly onto the utensils. You know, the your whole body language involved with that is not <laughs> not the best. So yeah. So the love language meaning, I I love preparing food for people with with all of my heart and love and intention, uh, in the creation of the food.
1: Do you remember the last time you cooked something when you were angry?
0: Uh, oh, yeah, sure. It was for myself, though. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't say angry. I would I would say, you know, that visceral sensation in your body when you're, like, irritated or aggravated? Or Oh, yeah. I know my, mine specifically was a, a reactive from something somebody else had said. And, you know, I'm replaying the conversation in my head and... Thinking of all the clever things I should have said. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of course. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm like cutting that orange up. Yeah. Not good. Not good.
1: Do you have any techniques for getting out of that mental state?
0: I recently have been exploring in my mind, sitting myself down. And just having this very black and white literal conversation, is this real Mm -hmm. or is this a story you're making up? Did Mm -hmm. it really happen? Did that person like literally say that to you? Right? Yeah. And so I ask myself just these very basic questions, like three or four questions. And by the end of it, I'm able to recognize that either. I may be making 90% of it up in my head because I'm angry <laughs> yeah. or that I have a, a valid concern and, and to validate it and say, you're upset. How are you gonna turn it around? Mm-hmm. And our brains like that monkey mind or you know, everybody has a name for it. it. I mean, it can run away with you. Yeah. And so I've been really trying to be, it's kind of part of my New Year's resolution. I'm disciplined in many areas of my life in my mental dialogue, I am loosey goosey. And so (laughs) seriously, I just let these stories roll. And I just, you know, so I'm really trying to tighten up the ship and um, be really disciplined and say, slow your roll. What's going on? Like, is this really true? Right? And so it's been helpful.
1: (laughs) Why do you think that you you know, your mind is allowed to, or maybe you have allowed, or maybe there's something in your past that has allowed your mind to go down those threads.
0: I don't know. I mean, in, in complete honest, I mean, of course I'm always being honest, but I, you know, in a, in a vulnerable, honest way, I will say, I have the most critical internal voice. Like, okay. I, it's something that I personally have struggled with my whole life, that nothing is ever good enough. I can find faults in everything I do. Um, so it's this, this discipline is very, a, a very personal um, goal of mine is to, to really discontinue that kind of like hateful dialogue with myself. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't like, and that's the thing, like in those frank conversations, I ask what, you i would never talk to any of my friends any adult any child i would never talk to any other human being this way like why am i giving myself permission to talk to myself this way you know
1: yeah do you find it hard to be proud of yourself and your successes
0: yes 100% okay. like it's never good enough and i know it sounds I I know I know the way it sounds I hear myself say it but it's the truth like it's never good enough it's you know and I think it's a blessing and a curse because I will always be on this like mission to be better or do better but it's exhausting frankly (laughs) you know it's exhausting (laughs) and I yeah like I'd like to find a place where I can show myself grace and say Rosie that you that was good that was okay that was
2: enough
1: Yeah, I I completely agree with this. You know, I'm I'm actually pretty much the exact same way where Uh (laughs) nothing I do is good enough. And I'll go back to certain things and, you know, that I've done maybe creatively. And I'm like, oh, that was pretty good. But I don't want myself or I try, I make this conscious effort to not allow myself to get lost like in my own sauce and mm-hmm. and then I, I just move on to the next thing and mm-hmm. then I try to forget about that last thing you know I guess mm-hmm. in journalism like you're only as good as your next project <laughs> which mm-hmm. is like mm-hmm. which you know as I've read um you know more and more like books on psychology like human psychology books on you know, trauma, those types of things. Like that's, that's a really like negative way to go about life. Like you're never, you're never good enough and you can't appreciate your current success. And, you know, I'm, I'm very much that person.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not good, Cody. (laughs) 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 Well, how about this? You let me know if you find any new little tricks to help with it.
1: (laughs) For sure. You know, getting back to the food, what kinds of food are you into?
0: I mindfully eat seasonally. Okay. So in the winter it's warm, healthy food and in the summer it's cooler fresh food. I try I try to fill my plate and maximize nutrition. Mhm. For example, you could have a side of lentils, sprouted lentils. Amazing! It's like a superfood, protein, fiber, <clears throat> really high in iron. Or you could have a side of jasmine rice, equally as delicious, nutritious. You know, questionable. Okay. Definitely <laughs> not as nutritious as a side of lentils. Okay. So I really try to make mindful decisions on what will what will optimize um, the health of and well-being of my body Mm -hmm. it's like choosing the right gas for a car i suppose right you're like i could go with this cheaper gas it'll get me to where i want to go yeah but will it really maximize my output
1: but do you get expensive gas or do you stick to unleaded
0: well i actually have an electric car oh you do that's great (laughs) okay so i guess you know That's not a good example necessarily for me
1: personally.
2: (laughs) But you get what I'm
0: saying.
1: I do, yeah, yeah. I don't know.
0: Bad analogy. Okay, okay.
1: In your experience, do you feel like there's a balance between food being healthy and tasting good? Or are foods that taste good generally unhealthy?
0: I'm going to go on a limb and say it's in the preparation. Okay. Okay when I bake, for example, instead of over sweetening my baked goods, I really try to utilize flavor, right? So I will add like a nice cardamom or lemon zest, or really try to maximize the flavor through that avenue versus making it taste delicious through added sugar. Mm -hmm. So I think it's in the preparation.
1: Totally. Um, my my wife, Carrie, got us those Hello Fresh meals for my last birthday back in January. And we're not big, you know, cookers. We don't cook a lot of food, but we're like, you know, we're at the age where we need to, uh, we don't eat terrible, but mm-hmm. like we don't cook all the time. So this was... Or this is our attempt to do that. And that's what I'm noticing too is is, um, instead of adding like sugar or adding like uh, too many spices, you can just squeeze a lemon over stuff. And then that is sufficient enough.
0: 100%. And looking at internationally um, in food, that's primarily what the world does
1: mm-hmm okay
0: is utilizes the other um lovely options rather than you know palm oil and sugar,
1: yeah, do you have any guilty pleasure food something you eat on like a cheat day?
0: Um well, I don't really have a cheat day,
1: okay. <laughs> I eat whatever I want
0: whenever, okay um, mindfully. Right. We're not talking like 10 donuts a day, but I would probably (laughs) say a donut. (laughs) Yeah. A donut, like an apple fritter.
1: Those are delicious. From Oh my
0: gosh. Like the crispy little edges. Um, the kids and I like to go to Dino's.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. That's great. And there's so much pleasure in it. Like really like making it like an all sensory experience. Eating it slowly, savoring it. Yeah, that'll tie me over for a couple months.
1: Do you know where this relationship, your relationship with food comes from?
0: That is so fascinating that you ask that. There's this book that I give my clients called Women, Food, and God. And it really explores that whole relationship that we have with food. Me personally... I was a child of the 80s. My, bless my mom's heart, she was doing what was fashionable at the time, but she never sat down with us at dinner. Mm. She stood in the kitchen eating her iceberg lettuce and diet coke and uh, I think it was like NutriSystem shakes. Okay. But it was very much a perception that women don't eat. Mhm. I fortunately was involved with a sport that encouraged and promoted muscular statute that it was a winter sport. So we were all real, you know, hardy folk Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and that, that strength was celebrated. I don't ever feel like I thought about food in a adverse way throughout my teenage years or or it's any in, really into my adulthood simply because it was um as an athlete it was modeled as consumption is good make mm-hmm. good healthy choices and you want to be strong
1: yeah that that's interesting to hear because i my relationship with with food and with exercise was always you know through snowboarding and mm-hmm. i never really ate super well when i would feed myself but my mom and my dad would always make, you know, the the food that we caught or the food that we hunted. Mm-hmm. And so that was always healthy. Um, but in my mind, you know, now that I think back on then, I'm I'm thinking like I was in shape as a byproduct of doing a sport that I had fun doing. And then once I got away from that and you know I went off to college and I'm like, why? Like, why am I gaining weight? Like, mm-hmm. what, what's going on here? And then I had to think, like, oh, because I'm not snowboarding anymore, I, mm-hmm. and I'm not like being conscious of the food that I'm eating, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. I think growing up in Alaska, we're pretty fortunate to have a real active lifestyle. And like you said, mm-hmm. you know, the subsistence component to our diet um, is pretty incredible, and we're really fortunate to have that. So. Moving around all the time is just a, like going back to what I was saying about the yoga and meditation. It's just part of your life. You don't, it's not something you mindfully make that decision to do because mm-hmm. it's just yeah. what you do, <laughs> you yeah. know? So,
1: definitely. Switching gears here a bit to snowboarding. And on February 8th of this year, you made a post on social media about experiences of sexual misconduct that spanned a decade while you were on the u.s ski and snowboard team how staff members were notified but did nothing and incidents went unreported Mm -hmm. what made you decide to speak out about this now
0: rewinding back to the 90s i was i think about it now and i was so blessed to be involved with snowboarding In the beginning, here in Alaska, Mm -hmm. I mean, your dad single-handedly, like (laughs) somehow, (laughs) wrangled, like took care of us, these wild teenagers. Like I'm so grateful uh, for his guidance as as a coach. I mean, I still have my borderline team jacket. Oh, that's awesome! You know, I mean, yeah, um, we were really lucky. to to kind of have him representing us in so many ways at nationals, as a coach, as a dad, as this, Mm -hmm. Um, he he wore so many hats. And so having those wonderful adult male role models, safe, healthy relationships Mm -hmm. as kind of my foundation, um, as I transitioned onto the national team, it was definitely a little bit of a shock as a young girl to have that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, as an adult now, as a mother of a daughter, mm-hmm. it's it's um, you know it's a coming from a different perspective. It's not a perspective of shame and guilt. It's a it's a perception of empowerment mm-hmm. and the desire to rebuild this broken system.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And why I came forward now, I think, because I am in my power as a female. And I, I understand very clearly now that I didn't do anything wrong.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, what were those experiences? With
0: the experiences
1: on the U S ski and snowboard team that you made the post about.
0: Okay. I, um, unfortunately because it's still under litigation, I can't really talk about it outside of the, the interviews that I've already given. Mm -hmm. Um, however, um, you know, my goal moving forward is to create and rebuild the broken system, um, that's currently in place. So that female athletes can travel and compete in a, in a safe and protected environment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm not sure if, you know, Callan, she also went to the Olympics for snowboarding. She's about my age. So mm-hmm. in her thirties, um, and they talk about sexual misconduct as well. And I have, you know, you and I have Callan on my social media, and I'm I'm thinking, like, what the hell is going on in the U.S. ski and snowboard team? You know, something that has spanned, you know, decades and decades.
0: I adore Callan. <laughs> Callan and I are actually um close friends Uh, i was her mentor as she was growing up and and as she joined the u.s snowboard team i absolutely adore her and really she's responsible for this for this big uh paradigm shift in this movement uh that that we're witnessing right now Mm -hmm. it has been going on for a long time and, and when I share my story with younger generations and I, I, I make the mistake of saying well it just that's the way it was back then and we just avoided conflict. We didn't we didn't want to rock the boat and these young girls are like how dare you how could you say that like how could you say that's just the way it was you know they're very much in their power at their age so much more than than I ever was at my age and it's Like it's, it's so refreshing to see, however, it's also hard to, you know, reflect, reflect back on, on the time that I was experiencing, uh, and kind of sit with that, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there, there might be and i'm just uh, i'm just guessing you know if if i was in that situation and i'm thinking about like me being protective over my younger self and being like in my mind thinking you know i had to walk so this generation could run kind of mentality you know mm-hmm. like it's it's deeper than you know the fact that maybe this group of of young women can in a way, judge you for how you behaved back then when, you know, you're behaving based on the society that you're living in at the time.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, they're, they're not running yet, right? They're still walking. And that's what our goal is, is to, to make, well, let's see, to create an environment where they feel safe enough to speak their truths, because I guarantee there are many more, many more that are afraid to talk to tell their story. And that was the primary number one reason why I decided to go public was to offer them a platform, a safe space to speak their truth. Mm -hmm. And also I think simply because we, we tell children time and time again, if something happens, you have to tell an adult, like, mm-hmm. don't feel ashamed. You didn't do anything wrong, but you must mm-hmm. tell an adult. So I, you know, if, if I'm going to talk the talk to my daughter, like, uh, you know, I, I have to also, you know, follow through with that. So,
1: yeah, I, I understand that you can't get into the details of those incidents, but I wonder if you've talked to your daughter about them.
0: She overheard conversations on the phone. She's a real smart cookie. I tell you, she's, (laughs) she's always listening. (laughs) You know, she is very aware of every, so she's always listening. So she did, she overheard, um, she saw it in the news. The extent of which she understands the nuances of it. No, I don't think she does. However, she knows what happened was wrong and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the basic concept of it. And our, you know, our school district does a wonderful job of really instilling that uh, the importance of that type of behavior immediately reporting it. So.
1: Mm-hmm what was it like to have to go back to training and competing around those people, you know, within the U S ski and snowboard team after all of that happened?
0: It's, it's such a toxic environment that it was wake up and it didn't happen. Hmm, Like it just didn't happen. Everybody goes on with their way and it just becomes the way of life. And everybody knows. For example, this has nothing to do with with the the litigation I'm involved with, but um, having the boys on our team, seeing them partying and hooking up and Mm -hmm. having their girlfriends come fly to Europe to be with them for the week. And they're sitting at the dinner table and having to face these women and know exactly what's going on. And we're just sitting there smiling, you know. Yeah. It's yeah, it was pretty pretty toxic environment.
1: Were there any points where you did feel safe? And I know you mentioned the scene in Alaska. It sounded like you felt pretty safe there.
0: Very safe.
1: Okay. But not in the ski and snowboard team. No. Do you think that that all of that affected your relationship with snowboarding? No, no. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Could you talk a little bit about that?
0: I, you know, I actually, Cody, I thought about this after you re after we connected, Mm -hmm. it kind of sent me down memory lane. I got a little nostalgic because I love snowboarding. And I mean, I have very vivid very specific like mental photographs of, of times during those early years at Arctic Valley, primarily because of Alyeska's uh, relationship with snowboarding at the time ended up with Alyeska Mm -hmm. that it's the, how could I say? It's just that unconditional love.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: It's a passion that just drives everything you do you wake up what you're determining every decision you make in your life and there was nothing i wanted to do more and the friendships uh, that that i created that are long lasting that's that you know are still exist to this day what complicates things is is when you have goals or all of a sudden it becomes a a defining you Mm -hmm. and that's where my that's when my relationship with snowboarding changed is that all of a sudden there were you know i wouldn't say consequences but you know there was like the potential to get hurt like to lose a race or to put Mm -hmm. it put all your level all your vulnerability everything you have into something and then not have it happen and i think that's love in general i mean that's love with anything You know, nothing that involves love is ever easy. And when you put your heart, when you put everything you have on the line, you know, you're opening yourself up for a lot. And so I would say that was more of the journey, my relationship journey with snowboarding was when all of a sudden there were things on the line, right? At Alyeska, it was pure bliss. (laughs) <laughs> pure bliss all for just the what was it, like let's find some old 90s word for it no all for the, you know
2: just,
0: <clears throat> just for the radness of it you know there we go yeah <laughs> um and so you know yeah definitely the olympics you know it convoluted that relationship and and you know when i began to define myself worth based on it shit it didn't have a chance
1: you know yeah. So you competed in the 1998 Winter Olympics in Japan, the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City, and the 2006 Winter Olympics in Italy. Back then, how did you feel about the Olympics? Did you feel like maybe making it on the team was a milestone in your career, or was it just another competition?
0: Starting with 98, my experience with the Olympics up until that point was watching Mary Lou Retton, right? I mean, we were all Mm -hmm. about the gymnastics, like never in my wildest dreams did I ever, that it was ever on my radar personally. And the, the vibe at the time, you know, I remember being at this party in Nagano with Jake Burton, the vibe at the time was like the Olympics are lucky to have us here. Mm-hmm. And so it was this real paradigm shift compared to the other sports. They were, you know, oh my gosh, all these uniforms, all this stuff. And I mean, granted, we were definitely starstruck as well, but our sport wasn't raised on the Olympics being the end all, the be all.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, we had we had the U.S. Open in March. I mean, this was just you know a stepping stone. Yeah, and not to minimize, certainly not to minimize the Olympics it was the perception, like that was the experience at that time for snowboarding. Mm -hmm. We had Tadia Hawkinson, he didn't compete, you know, at the time he was the best. He was, had nothing to do with the Olympics. Yeah. And so, um, you know, obviously as the national team took over, (coughs) excuse me, as um, it became more corporate, Mm-hmm. it definitely became more of a big milestone for everybody. So,
1: You know, that's interesting what you just said about as it became more corporate, it became more of a milestone for everybody. Do you feel like that was true for you too, that that, that it becoming more corporate meant it meant more?
0: Exactly. Okay. Well, and it kind of goes back to, you know, the snowboarding at Alyeska. Mm-hmm there wasn't any the stoke cody that's a perfect (laughs) word it was all for the
2: stoke yeah the stoke
0: (laughs) um you know and all of a sudden oh shit there's money involved oh whoa Mm -hmm. like
1: you
0: know all of a sudden it it puts you in a box
1: yeah and how do you feel about the olympics now
0: i love i am a i will watch any sport i love watching sports i love spectating It's been all sports. So I sit down with the kids for two weeks and we just totally binge on the Olympics.
1: Really? That's great. I I would never expect that. Uh, What what sports do you like in specific or is it just all of them? Oh, all of them. Okay.
0: All of them. And I tell you, I get 100% way more nervous watching other people compete than I ever did myself. I think it's like a control thing, probably, you know, like just sitting there (coughs) watching, excuse me. So, and I think it's good for the children. I, you know, I have uh, three tattoos, one uh, of which represents each Olympics. And the second one was from my Olympic experience in Salt Lake. And I went into that Olympics. Ranked second in the world, I had a mock-up Wheaties box, mm-hmm. and I got to the top of the hill, and my fear of failure like overrode my ability to succeed. And my body knew exactly what to do, but mm-hmm. it's that brain stepping in and totally like sabotaging everything, and I ended up crashing, and and so my tattoo is of the Olympic rings, but they're squares, and it at the time, you know, for me it represented the the sharp edges of the Olympics, the rise and the fall and all this, like these perfect circle bullshit was not yeah, my experience or you know, 99% because we're fed this, this line of work hard and you'll succeed. And that's not true. Yeah, not at all. Like you, you can work your butt off and not accomplish your goal. And that's okay. Right. We yeah. need that, like that preface of like, it's you know it's okay you, you're going to work hard and those lessons you learn then are going to be way more important than that olympic medal mm-hmm. and so i really you know kind of going back to watching the olympics it's important for my children to see the 99 percent of the people that don't win olympic medals and it's okay yeah they're, they're still good people like they're still kind they're still hard workers they're still amazing athletes so
1: can you explain that moment at the top of the course when you got too much in your own head
0: oh yeah I, I i knew it i knew it i i stood there and i could see the finish line and the alaska flags waving and i knew it i was just like i cannot i'm not leaving this starting gate <laughs> i was like i am not no <laughs> no don't make me go <laughs> that was my internal dialogue literally
1: and so it didn't surprise you when what happened happened
0: No. And I mean, like, it was almost a relief in a way. It was just like, ah, there it is. Okay, good. Like, I mean, not really, but that's, that was a, you know, a millisecond sensation of like, ah, okay, I knew that was going to happen. And now it's over, Mm -hmm. you know,
1: Compared to how you felt back then, you know, right after that happened, compared to how you feel now, is there a difference or Is there not a difference? What do you mean? I, and and I'm just assuming here, but after, you know, it didn't turn out the way that you would have hoped it turned out, you know, winning the gold and maybe you're disappointed in yourself or you're disappointed in the outcome. And I wonder how long that lasted, if, if that's how you felt.
0: Yes. Um, I think there's also like, let's add another ingredient into this hot mess, right? And that is defining your self-worth not only through the sport, but what other people think about you, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there was that component of having to go to the finish line and see all the disappointed faces of my family, the coaches, everybody, you know, bye-bye Wheaties box, you know, you can just scratch that off your list. Right. And so I think now i mean, and they say that often about older athletes, like who are so much more mentally mature. Mm -hmm. I I mean, uh, yeah, certainly I would approach it from a different place from now because I certainly don't give a shit what people think. So that would eliminate that ingredient. And also like, uh, you know, the, the component of really not having much to lose like is this all really like is it all really worth it Mm -hmm. you know
1: Do you think that having kids helped you shift that perception? You know, not caring what other people think?
0: No. No? That's a, okay. that's, that's kind of a... That's a pretty recent, you know, within the last six years. Really? Okay. Um, yeah, that's that's definitely a recent kind of epiphany for me. Um, you know what? I'm not sure... I can't pinpoint it to a certain experience. Um, perhaps it's... Um, part of the journey of self-love, okay. of self-acceptance. And the more that we can accept ourselves and own our authenticity, the less tolerant we are of people who don't.
1: So it was just a feeling that just happened.
0: Yeah. I would, uh, you know, I'm, I'm can't, I just can't pinpoint necessarily any like pivotal moments where it was like a, sh- a complete mind shift. But, yeah, I think it was just a process of, of self-love and um, being able to feel comfortable in my authenticity mm-hmm. and it be okay that people don't accept it. And that's okay. It's almost like a proverbial exhale. Yeah. Where you're like, ah, <laughs> yeah. okay, here, I've arrived in my body. Exactly, I've yeah. arrived in myself.
1: And just being comfortable with... Mm-hmm. All of your own uh, eccentricities, your inconsistencies, you know, everything that makes you you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And celebrating it, like yeah, yeah, yeah. recognizing that it's a gift, not this burden. Totally. Yeah.
1: Did you feel like snowboarding was going to be your career, that this is what you'd be doing for the rest of your life?
0: 100% no. Okay. It's certainly not. I mean, those those early days snowboarding... It never crossed my mind but neither did like what am I gonna do with my life So mm-hmm. who knows what was going on <laughs> I don't know. Oh, all for the Stoke. Um, no I you know I I had that path that all par- you know not all parents you know the parents okay high school, college you know that was certainly on my mind but no no it was it was a blessing uh, that I had the opportunity the gift to do that as Mm -hmm. a, as an occupation for
1: sure. How often do you think about that Wheaties box?
0: Not too often. I, the last time it came out was my son is a passionate soccer player. Mm -hmm. And the last time the Wheaties box came out is when I was giving them a speech and his team excuse me and it came out and I laugh you know I I look at it and I not laughing at her but bless her heart just the intensity on on my face and the idealistic dreamy goal-driven human on that box and how how I she's probably the voice I'm having that like really disciplined talk with like stop talking to yourself like that you know maybe that's her (laughs) but you know and i'm glad to not be in that space anymore
1: i feel like this question gets asked a lot in interviews but there's been so much talk about you know rosie now and then rosie you know in the past you know snowboarding and competing rosie If you could tell yourself or help yourself understand something, you know, younger Rosie, what would that be?
0: I actually had the opportunity uh, before the 2006 Olympics. I was having a crappy year the year before. Like, and I knew that 2006 was gonna be my last year. Mm -hmm. And so I stood at the top, we always have a world cup on the Olympic site the year before. So I stood at the top of that course and I took a picture from the starting gate of these beautiful mountains and it was to serve, you know, as some type of training, you know, whether it's visualization uh, for the upcoming summer and going into the Olympic year. Mm -hmm. And as I went home with that picture, Knowing it was going to be my last year, I took the opportunity to reflect on my career, and I was always drawn back to those spring days at Alyeska, riding that m- long-ass Mike Rankwit snow, <laughs> Rinkwit, <Yeah. laughs> excuse me, snowboard. Um, totally the wrong snowboard for me, but not caring, <laughs> right? I don't yeah. even know whose it was, um, but just. Being so present in that unconditional love for what I was doing. Yeah. And so I really did. I spent that summer reconnecting with that. Just that really simple love for the sport. And so that was the advice I was simul- kind of simultaneously giving myself. like, Go back to that space of love. Mm-hmm. where you weren't doing it for this stupid reason or this reason or that reason or for someone to like you or for this money or for this title, right? Do it because you love it. Yeah. Reconnect with that. So that's kind of the long answer.
1: <laughs> no, that's a great answer. You know, I think that you approached it in such a a different and unique way was instead of, you know, this concept of traveling back in time with this fictitious you know time machine you're like I'm gonna go back to the resort that I grew up on and I'm gonna reconnect with the thing that I did snowboarding when I was younger and I'm going to reconnect with my past self that way in a healthy way
0: Mm -hmm. and bring her with me
1: Yeah, bring her with me. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's coming with me. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Earlier, you said that you have so many mental photographs. Can you describe one of those mental photographs?
0: Standing at the start at the Tito Ramos Memorial Race, I believe it was 1991, It was through ptarmigan gully the wind is blowing like all hell Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and there there was only two of us girls that entered the race so there wasn't much of a wait. (laughs) and it was the first snowboard race i ever did and like the gates were like up on the gullies right and coming from a ski racing background it was like such a paradigm shift like Mm -hmm. They put the gate on the hill, like, you know, whoa, blew my mind and just feeling the wind on my face. Didn't mean I was necessarily probably going too fast, but, you know, just feeling that wind, feeling the bib flapping against my coat. And I remember smiling the whole way down. Yeah. Also, I have this very, very vivid memory of sitting on top of this cliff with your brother Derek and he I don't know he's probably like nine <laughs> and you know I was 15 and we were sitting there and he was like just do it just do it you like, can't <laughs> I'm like and he was like Rosie just do it and everybody else was at the bottom waiting which makes it even more nerve-wracking yeah and he just launches off it and I was like well shoot if if you know this little kid and I'd launched right off of it so yeah that was another really vivid memory I mean I still like this the texture of the snow his huge jacket that went like below his knees it was probably (laughs) I don't know it wasn't Jake's because he wasn't that much bigger but yeah big coat it was a style actually yeah you know and and yeah very vivid memories
1: You're able to retrieve these memories so quickly. I wonder, are they just, uh, are they just swirling around in your, in your mind or are you able to think about retrieving them and then you retrieve them?
0: No, I think they're, I think they're like in your bones, you know? Okay. They're there. They're, um, uh, you store memories like in your fascia and your tissue. I think if, uh, you know, for example, if like Jason Borg said, or like, you know, Jeff Hoke, or if somebody was like, I have this memory of this time. Do you remember it? Yeah. I could be like, hell no. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about, you know? But it was just simply, you know, just, you know, just a photograph in my mind. (coughs) I don't know, Derek may hear that story and be like, I have no idea what she's saying, you know, but it,
1: (laughs) yeah. You know, if, if memories are stored in your body, you know, in your bones and your muscles, what triggers those memories for you?
0: That's a really good question. Some of them just kind of randomly come, you know how memories are. They'll just come up at random times. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't think of anything really specifically that that triggers them.
1: For me, it's smells. Smells Mm, mm -hmm. are very, uh, are like really important to me in my mind and they'll bring me right back to a situation or a house or, you know, something from my past. Mm
0: -hmm. Definitely, definitely. I guess, you know, maybe a song Right. Like a bad religion song. Oh, yeah. That would bring me back real quick. Yeah. (laughs) Or like Operation Ivy or some like bootleg. Yeah.
1: Where does bad religion bring you back to?
0: Bad religion brings me back to that time period, early 90s of learning how to snowboard, night skiing or, you know, night snowboarding. I lived in Girdwood and I sh- kid you not, we would drive to Arctic Valley to go snowboarding. <laughs> so, I know it sounds so silly, but it was like, they welcomed us with open arms. They would put on the raddest like rail jams competitions. I mean, they were definitely very supportive of snowboarding from the beginning.
1: Mm-hmm. Was there a competition that you did well early on where you kind of proved to yourself that you were a competitor?
0: I comes right to mind when you said that, I mean, (laughs) the sensation, the snow falling, the, the course, the people, it's interesting how that happens. It was at Squaw Valley and it was my first year in the North American professional tour. Mm-hmm. And I was training with a team at the time, a husband and wife team. The wife was ranked top 3 in the world. Was towards the end of her career, still extremely strong. Mm-hmm. And it was a parallel event which, you know, you go from 8 people to 4 people, you know, it's it's a, an elimination round. And I ended up meeting her in the finals. And you know, when you're young. Yeah. You don't give a shit. I'm like, I'm going to kick her ass. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course it, her name's Tara. Her name is Tara. And I mean, of course, like I have all the respect, but no intimidation. Like I had it in my bones that I was going to win. Yeah, And I did, I ended up winning. And at that, my dad was at the event and he was still on the fence, whether or not he really wanted me to do this whole snowboarding thing. Anyway, Mm -hmm. he'd kind of graced me with a extended year out of high school to kind of take a chance with it. And, and so really that race, I think solidified for me as an athlete, as well as for my dad, um, that I was moving in the right direction. And yeah, it just kind of solidified my position as an athlete, an upcoming athlete on the tour.
1: Yeah, yeah, that moment sounds like it was a real, you know, the student has become the sensei or the teacher in a lot of ways.
0: It was, and I was still quite young. And I remember the snow was super wet. It was falling, and it was actually one of the years that Jason Borgsted was living in the area, and he he was at the race, and he was like, "Whoa!"
1: <laughs> I mean, I was too. I you know, I,
0: gosh, I think I was you know nineteen years old, and um, it, it's kind of um, it's kind of like that old saying there's nothing more dangerous than somebody who has nothing to lose. And and that was me at the time. I was just gave it my all.
1: Why do you feel like you had nothing to lose? Because I was
0: young. Uh, I didn't have the, the sponsors, the world ranking, um, all of those things that kind of come along with success. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it really actually, that kind of mentality followed me through my career. And I, th- I think looking back, um, it was all or nothing. Mm-hmm. I either won or I fell. And th- there's some strategy, obviously, in, in all different kinds of competitions, especially with that parallel, because the days are so long and you're making so many runs that you have to be consistently on your game. And every run I went out there, it was all or nothing
1: you said that before you won that competition, your dad was kind of on the fence with the whole idea. Do you feel like you won him over to, you know, you being a snowboarder?
0: I think so. I think he was pretty impressed with me winning the race, the uh, this professional event. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, um, winning against Tara was a huge deal. So, yeah, I think I legitimized it in his mind. Um, at the time, the Olympics were still not in the picture. So um, it, it wasn't like everybody was looking bigger picture forward to ultimately making the games.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
1: You know, I'm wondering if your dad or your parents were paying for those coaching lessons or were you?
0: I was definitely. I, I worked, I worked three jobs. This is totally going to date me. Um, (laughs) I was working at the video store. in. Oh, I love it. (sighs) Uh, Yeah. I was working at the bake shop, the video store. And then there was a little restaurant in bird Creek that I would drive to. Okay. I was, I was working my butt off and, and really, um, I can say throughout my whole career that I never rode as good as I did as when I was dreaming of snowboarding while working. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're working and you're like, I could do this and I would do that. And you, you feel it viscerally in your body. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would say maybe that, that third Olympics, there were maybe a couple races where I did end up snowboarding like I did in my dreams. But, um, I was very dedicated, very focused and knew exactly what I wanted to do. And that was to snowboard
1: and mm-hmm. that's it hands down. And are you, you saying, you know, snowboarded in your dreams? Are you, are you saying that, uh, like figuratively or did you really, did you really dream about snowboarding?
0: Oh, more figuratively, more like daydreaming daydreaming, okay. I guess is a is a better word, but yeah, I would daydream all the time where where they were so vivid, I could feel it in my body. I guess yeah. it's like early early manifestation <laughs> you know,
1: yeah, mhm, and how long did you compete in snowboard competitions
0: uh, fifteen years
1: fifteen years yeah, that is a big chunk of time,
0: yeah. And when I was done snowboarding, so you think about it, you know, like, so from the age, you know, pretty much, uh, late teens into adulthood, you can imagine that when I was done snowboarding, I, I barely knew how to boil water, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like the whole, like all of those, like life skills you learn. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't happen. I was on the road,
1: (laughs) which is super interesting because now, like we talked about earlier in the conversation you know you're into cooking so you know you finish with your your snowboard competition career and like you just said you couldn't boil water but you know here you are today and you're cooking all this stuff and you're passionate about it
0: yeah it's like my life passion um You know, I fortunately had a wonderful model. My mom was a baker at the bake shop. All of our food was always handmade. She loved wild harvesting berries and plants. So I had that foundation built early on in my life. Mm -hmm. So when I was done, I made it a, I was determined. I made it a goal to learn how to prepare food. And really, I think um, it's when I was pregnant with my son, Oscar, that it really became most important because soon I was going to have this child and I needed to like make him food. And that was really, it was really yeah. important to me yeah. because it was so important when I was growing up.
1: Did you have any meals that you had in your mind? You know, I know that, uh, my wife and I, you know, we're doing the hello fresh thing mm. and we, you know, we want to learn how to cook for ourselves, obviously, but you know eventually, when we decide to have kids, we want to be able to cook for them because you know eating McDonald's all the time and taco Bell is not healthy
0: no <laughs> not healthy for you either exactly
1: yeah
0: <laughs> um you know, I read early on in my parenting journey that um you should have three meals, you know, like taco Tuesday or, or Monday chicken enchiladas, right? Mm-hmm. You have three meals that are consistent. So when the kids ask what's, you know, they, they essentially wouldn't ask what was for dinner because they know like on Mondays we have chicken enchiladas and on mm-hmm. Tuesday we have tacos or, you know, whatever your menu is. And, and um, before I read that I was you know, trying to explore all these fancy dishes and this and that. And, and the kids were like, no yeah just yeah. give us something consistent and we yeah. know what to expect so that's you know that's kind of how we've carried on and and um you know they're 13 and 10 now and they know monday night we're having chicken enchiladas
1: <laughs> is that really what monday is
0: yeah it is
1: so today today, today is monday uh-huh today is chicken enchilada day. Yep.
0: and sometimes my sister beth comes <laughs> over for chicken enchiladas
1: Oh, that's great.
0: Yeah. And it's easy as a parent too, right? Yes. It's, you, know, you know, it's predictable and.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, something I keep thinking of is if you miss that competition atmosphere.
0: Yes, hundred percent. And I find myself, I have to be really mindful because I find myself um, projecting it onto other people. Okay. <laughs> whether it's my kids or um, in personal training environments. Um, you know, I, I try to set a really clear standard with with um, my clients. It's, it's an hour, it's your time, and we're gonna maximize it. We're not gonna chit chat, we're not gonna get water, go to the bathroom, show up prepared. Mm-hmm. And um, with the children, I, I can feel it in my body like, why are you not prepared or like I'm working with Oscar right now on controlling the things you can control and, and ignoring the things you can't like, don't even waste your time. You can't control it. Let it go. And, Mm -hmm. and so I I can get a little intense for sure. Um, yeah, for sure. I miss it. I think it'll always be in, it's like in my bones, right? It'll always be there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you get that same rush and, stoke from yoga that you used to get from snowboarding no no okay no,
0: definitely not i don't think i ever will you, actually the one thing that's come the closest my daughter olga uh competes in hunter jumper she's an equestrian mm-hmm. and since then i mean i never rode a horse growing up i mean shoot i lived in girdwood <laughs> we didn't have <laughs> running water and, and power i mean i'm sure we afford a horse you know anyway uh, <laughs> and so i learned how to ride a horse and and did a little, um, (coughs) hunter jumper myself. And it's, it's the closest, closest I've come to that level of intensity and focus required. Um, and I love it. I mean, I, at my age though, like the, the potential of getting hurt's really high (laughs) because Cody, I still have that, like, fucking like all or nothing go and <laughs> you yeah. know the trainer's like whoa chill you need to you need to back it up girl <laughs> I'm like why <laughs> you know so yeah so I I'm not really riding much anymore so but I love it it's and the connection with animals I love animals like I am passionate about all living things and, and animals in particular so that that connection with another Seoul is beautiful. It's, it's a blessing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. When was the last time you went snowboarding?
0: Um, this year with the kids. Yeah. Yeah. At Hilltop. They have a ski pass at Hilltop. So we can just jam up there after school and on the weekends, it's such an incredible resource for our community. So yeah.
1: Can you explain that to me? You know, you going up there, and riding
0: um yeah it's bittersweet other than i also have oscar's friends asking me to ride rails and do 540s and I'm <laughs> like, eh, sorry kids <laughs> I'm like but you went to the olympics i'm like yeah that was like a long time ago um it's fun simply because it's in a completely different context you know with the kids and follow me on the trail and do this and do that and mm-hmm. and um it's uh, being present in my body and, um, you know, feeding off of their stoke, right? Like Mm -hmm. they're so pumped to be up there and, and it's contagious and, and, um, yeah, I love it. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah. What do you think was the most, or maybe one of the most transformative experiences you had in snowboarding?
0: Um, I think the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake, and especially after September 11th, our world was in turmoil. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember there being uh, guards and uh, military incognito lining the mountaintops around Park City where we were training and while the event obviously didn't turn out as i had hoped, you know, like we talked about earlier i think it really forced me to look at exactly why i was snowboarding. Like mm-hmm. why are you doing this? Like this is why you started, but th- you are so far from there right now. Like the farthest I've ever been. And it, and it was, it was, you know, back to the Wheaties box and being ranked, you know, third in the world, or, uh, you know, just the pressure and this money and the sponsors and Mm -hmm. the Olympics, you know, the, those daunting rings, right. It's haunting. And, and so um, it was transformative in that I had to reconnect with that unconditional love and i mean like like i said i mean nothing that involves love is ever easy it's so much fucking easier just to give up and bail right yeah. <laughs> with, yeah. with people with things with whatever it's like okay i'm out yeah right and i and i and it did cross my mind i told my dad you know probably numerous times i'm done like i hate this like i have never felt so much pain in my life yeah and for various reasons um most of which were Uh, you know, really had nothing to do with me per se, but, um, so yeah, I had, I was forced to look at myself and, and look at this love and, and love it back unconditionally with the good and the bad. And, um, I took the summer off from training. I came back up here and, um, you know, reconnected with that love of snowboarding and I, I made amends, made amends with it. Mm
2: Mm-hmm
1: so you said that you competed for 15 years and what happened you know what what made you move on
0: in 2006 and cody i don't even i don't even know like why or i don't even remember making a conscious decision like hey this is it mm-hmm. i just knew i just knew that Olympic year 2006 was gonna be my last and I don't remember making a big deal out of it or telling anybody I just you know you just know it when you know it and I took the opportunity to really take in all of the beautiful stops at the ski resorts that we were fortunate enough to um, go to the people the hotels former or uh, current competitors, um, because I knew that was going to be it. I knew it. I knew that was the last year. And ironically, the the ski hill where we had the Olympics in 2006, where I won the bronze medal, was the same mountain 10 years earlier where I had won my first World Cup. Huh, and, okay. yeah, it was this serendipitous. And I, you know, I look at, I have a picture of being on the podium, you know, that year and then in 2006. So, um, yeah, I just knew it and had no regret. I went on to a wonderful job with mayor baggage and I remember, you know, sitting in city hall and having people ask me like, oh my gosh, are you like missing it? Are you watching the World Cup? And I was like, no, no <laughs> regrets. None.
1: Yeah. None. I wonder, have you thought about why you have no regrets?
0: I think people would probably say, oh, yeah, because you won an Olympic medal. That's real easy for you to be done. <laughs> um. I, I honestly feel like I done what I needed to do. I didn't have any unfinished business, mm-hmm. but yeah, probably winning the, winning a medal helped for sure. I can't, pre- I can't uh, predict, you know, how it would be different because it, it is what it is. So
1: yeah. <clears throat> and then you went and you worked for mayor baggage that, that, that's a pretty stark difference. You know in what you're doing
0: it was oh my gosh um i couldn't have been more blessed with uh the wonderful people i worked with who very gently and uh kindly encouraged me along the way and and helped me understand the nuances of um you know government and the way the way that um public sector works. I definitely uh, made quite a few little mistakes along the way. Um, I recognized early on that people call City Hall to complain. They never call (laughs) and say, hey, wow, thanks for putting up the Christmas lights in Town Square. They look awesome. (laughs) And so that was definitely a difference. I went from like, hey, Olympic athlete, will you sign my jacket or oh cool can i have a picture with you to people calling saying you killed ferrandi (laughs) and i was like hey whoa you got the wrong person i have no idea what you're talking about like people angry
1: yeah
0: um so yeah i mean that's politics is tough politics is tough
1: i just keep thinking about like you know exactly what you just said you know you went from being this athlete you're winning medals and now you're in, you know, in politics, local politics, in Alaska, and you're getting these calls, and people are yelling at you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, you know what I, I am a, excuse me, a glass half full. Okay. You know, you know um, I, my strongest attribute is I am. I have a lot of perseverance and I I keep going and it was challenging at first, but I also got to see the rewards of, um, of you know, serving in politics mm-hmm. and um, safety in our city, community building. I mean, there mm-hmm. were so many positives that, you know, those people complaining. I don't, I'm really also fairly good at not taking things personal. So I was like, (laughs) like, maybe just having a bad day. I don't know, you know, so the the benefits far outweighed those, those calls. But that was one thing, you know, I, I still think about like people don't call city hall uh, to say thank you. (laughs) It's usually to complain. Frankly, I am very much an introvert. I am shy and awkward. And sometimes I think it's misunderstood as being like, uh, I don't know, not stuck up, but unapproachable, but I am painfully shy. So being sitting in city hall, being in Anchorage politics was just fine for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Okay. Because frankly, you know, I had this, um, this routine where if I had to do like public speaking or be in the media or do any, you know, anything public, I literally would like visualize putting on this other hat and being this other Rosie. So it's kind of this alter ego um, but in my heart of hearts like who I really am, like I, I'm very much an introvert.
1: So you weren't trying to move up in any political position, were you?
0: Um, not necessarily. I think you know I at one time had aspirations of being Anchorage's first Female mayor. Um, I don't have thick enough skin though. I I operate from my heart brain too much, you know. So, and I think where I have found to be most effective as Rosie is in completely different areas. So,
1: what do you think made you want to be? the mayor of Anchorage, is it, you know, that you wanted to help people, you wanted to help the community, you know, what was it?
0: Yeah, I love being engaged with the community. Um, in the, in, in the, in the job, um, with mayor baggage, that was my favorite part is was going to all of the different community councils and, and really trying to navigate, um, a lot of, um, inner uh what's the word I'm looking for um, collaborations really okay. like, like really getting everybody to collaborate could the school district collaborate with the city for roads and like how could we be more efficient? Um, I remember when I was standing on the uh, podium in Torino they were it was huge this huge stand we were all uh, all uh, receiving our medals on and I thought to myself you know if I could bring my coach, my teammates, my family, Alaska, up onto the podium, that would be more of an accurate representation of who actually won the medal. Okay. And, you know, I was so blessed with so much support from our community and, um, I-, I felt like maybe it was a way that I could give back.
1: Yeah. So that's what you wanted to do after competing. You wanted to come back home and help your community.
0: Yes. hundred percent. That's great. Yeah.
1: So, getting back to yoga (laughs) i feel like with yoga mindfulness and meditation we're able to access these parts of ourselves that are buried kind of deep within ourselves do you feel like yoga has helped you access any parts of yourself
0: most definitely most definitely if we can approach yoga and meditation and pranayama, the breath work, if we can approach it through our breath, leaving our analytical mind, right? The yes, no, right, wrong, good, bad. If we can, Mm -hmm. if we can separate that, um, and meet ourselves in a place of compassion and grace in that presence, I think we can definitely explore and unearth all, all different pieces of us that have kind of been buried in our tissue, you know, for sure. Good and bad. Right. I I think you have to be ready, open-minded, present and ready Mm -hmm. for what's going to come forward.
1: You know, I don't know if I'm always ready (laughs) for what comes forward. I I'm, I'm really good at getting myself into that meditative Mm -hmm. state, you know, where I've emptied my mind. And it's like an accidental gift that I have noticed about myself that I'm able to just kind of, when I am listening to a guided meditation, I'm able to kind of like dump my brain, mm-hmm. not immediately, but after a short while I'm able to. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I get too deep in that, like really too like lost in your own mind and you almost can't even feel your body anymore, like mm-hmm. you're you're just in your mind, I get a little scared. Why? I I feel like I'm falling almost like I feel like I'm bodiless. Is that normal?
0: (laughs) But but like, let's unpack this, Cody. Like, why is that scary? Or why is that frightening? Because
1: I think I am a little bit of a control freak, maybe. (laughs) I mean, I'm just unpacking this uh-huh. now with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> that very well could be. I and, and I guess when I say ready, it's not in terms of preparation because you never know what's going to come up. I guess when I say ready, I, I mean uh, present in the moment. Yeah. That you're that you're that you're committed to being present and and available to what comes forward. I um I was uh talking with this woman once. She was a Jungist. Uh, she practiced, uh, studied Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. And um, I was telling her about this dream I kept having, right? This, like, I was treading this river. I, you know, I kind of envisioned it as being like the Kinei River. You're trying to cross the Kena River. And like the current was so strong. And, and to my right was this waterfall. And not that I was necessarily like thinking of the waterfall, but I was very determined like that I had to cross this river. And I kept telling her about this uh, dream. And she said, Rosie, wonder if you just let go and went down the waterfall. Hmm. And I was like, I don't know, never thought about it. Right? And so I guess it, it reminds me of kind of what you're saying is it's like, well, why? Like, why is that sense of surrender because we're control
2: freaks,
0: (laughs) (laughs) maybe, no, just kidding, but I do, I, I, you know, that sense of surrender is, it's vulnerable. Yeah. It's tender. It's exposed. I mean, yeah, that's, that's hard. That's hard.
1: The next time you had that dream, were you able to let yourself go?
0: I don't think I had the dream again, but I was ready. I was ready. I was like, okay, I'm going to try to like have this lucid dreaming experience and like let like, go oh, and I I didn't have the dream again.
1: Huh. Yeah, I wonder if I just accept it right now yeah. <laughs> in mm-hmm. this episode with you yeah. and maybe that feeling never happens again or maybe it mm-hmm. does happen again but I accept it and then it just gives me a completely different sensation.
0: Or shifting the paradigm in in that it's an opportunity, like, wow, this is exciting. Where is this gonna take me? Mm-hmm. Not as not as a loss, but as a gain. Yeah. Like not that I'm losing my body, but I'm what am I gaining in return? I like that. I don't know.
1: Well, Rosie, <laughs> that's it for my questions.
0: <laughs> <Okay. Yeah. laughs> Whoa. Oh, real deep, Cody. No, <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was really great catching up with you. You know, I want to thank you for this conversation, for your openness, for your insight. You know, all of it.
0: Oh, thank you. It, it was, it was um, a, a blessing to, to catch up with you as well, and I really enjoyed our time together.
1: For more information about the Anchorage Museum. Visit AnchorageMuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermarks music is produced by Keys Open Doors.